thank you very much for coming to this session this afternoon at All About Women, and thank you for coming to the festival as well. I hope and trust that you've all had an inspiring day. Um, you can tweet along to this event this afternoon at hashtag allaboutwomen, and um, I think that covers the internet technology side of things. Um, joining me today for the panel, um, <coughs> Rape Culture, Is It Rape Culture Everywhere? Sorry, you get a lot of pressure with a, a panel like this because it's such a, an enormous topic and you're aware that there's certain protocols that you need to follow. So I'm going to try and be very, very sensitive to everyone in the room tonight. Obviously, this is going to be a panel that will carry trigger warnings and, and possible emotional implications for people in the room. So I acknowledge that from the outset. Um, I'm joined today by Dixie Link-Gordon, right next to me. Dixie is part of the Garangarang people of Queensland. Her work is focused on the development of community-based education and training to advocacy and assistance in the areas of legal aid, education, support and advocacy for Aboriginal women. Dixie was a former member of the New South Wales... Uh, sorry, the now defunct New, New South Wales Premier's Council on Preventing Violence Against Women. I understand that with the new government, they decided that that wasn't a group mm. that they needed to continue. Yeah, changing it all up. <laughs> She's also an educator on the Tackling Violence campaign for the NRL and on the steering committee for Hastis, I've Got Your Back. So please join me in welcoming Dixie Link-Gordon. <laughs> And then to my far left, I have Dr. Kieran Greywell. Dr. Kieran Greywell is a human rights lawyer and her PhD was on the topic of ethnicised gang rape and the relationship between constructions of national gender and sexual identity in France and Australia. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Greywell. Uh, and if you don't know, which I, do, I don't expect everyone to at all, my name's Clementine Ford and I write for Daily Life. It seems predominantly lately on the topic of rape, which makes for especially nice dinner party conversations, <laughs> as my boyfriend keeps reminding me. <laughs> um, so we're here to discuss rape culture today. Is rape culture everywhere? I've, uh, I'm going to channel my Year 12 private school debate public speaking person now and say, rape culture is a concept used to describe a culture in which rape <laughs> and sexual violence are common and in which prevalent attitudes excuse, tolerate or even condone rape. So I'm sorry to pull out a definition for you there, but that will be the last of definitions, but probably provides a useful framework and context for us to go forth from today. Um, so I, I guess to begin with, I'd just like to ask the panellists how they view rape culture and whether or not they even see it as being something that exists, because it's, it's a concept that is challenged by some people. Okay, I'll just start off by saying, you know, rape culture is about blaming the victim. There's a whole culture, there's a whole, you know, word out there, talk out there, whether you're on the streets, in the, in the skyscrapers, wherever, they're all talking about, uh, when they talk about rape, it is about the victim and the victim asking for it. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, for me, rape culture is about the ways in which women and girls are taught that their sexuality is something that they constantly need to protect, that is passive, that is objectified, and men and boys are taught that somehow their sexuality is something that is animalistic, that they don't have control over, and they also don't necessarily have a great deal of responsibility for. That, to me, is, is rape culture. And, I mean, just to give a little example, um, one of the cases that I looked at in my PhD, um, the judge on the Supreme Court, in his sentencing remarks, said, I think we need to have better education for girls and boys about rape. 
Okay, so what, what is his message? So he had a whole spiel. So for girls, don't let anyone tell you that degrading sex is, is enjoyable or fun. I'm really glad I need a 60-something old man to tell me mm. that degrading sex isn't enjoyable or fun. And, you know, if you get in a car with strange men, basically you're asking for it. This is a Supreme Court judge in New South Wales talking in 2007. And what is the message to the boys? Well, you may think that this is lots of fun, but we will catch you now and you will go to prison and you'll probably be raped in prison yourself. And that mm. was pretty much his message. So, I mean, that to me captures rape culture. Um, I think just, I'm just going to jump on something you said there about being raped in prison, just quickly to kind of broaden that sense of, or understanding of rape culture as well, is that one of the things that I find interesting about the sort of, the punishment pr proposed for rapists is the rape in prison. And it's this kind of <laughs> continuation of rape culture as being a corrective form of violence. Mm. But if you allow for men to be raped in prison to correct their behaviour, then all you're actually doing is perpetuating the concept of rape being a tool that can be used to, to dominate and correct people's behaviour in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that ties back to... Thank you very much for coming to this session this afternoon at All About Women, and thank you for coming to the festival as well. I hope and trust that you've all had an inspiring day. Um, you can tweet along to this event this afternoon at hashtag allaboutwomen, and um, I think that covers the internet technology side of things. Um, joining me today for the panel, um, <coughs> Rape Culture, is it Rape Culture Everywhere? Sorry, you get a lot of pressure with a, a panel like this because it's such a, an enormous topic and you're aware that there's certain protocols that you need to follow. So I'm going to try and be very, very sensitive to everyone in the room tonight. Obviously, this is going to be a panel that will carry trigger warnings and, and possible emotional implications for people in the room. So I acknowledge that from the outset. Um, I'm joined today by Dixie Link-Gordon, right next to me. Dixie is part of the Garangarang people of Queensland. Her work is focused on the development of community-based education and training to advocacy and assistance in the areas of legal aid, education, support and advocacy for Aboriginal women. Dixie was a former member of the New South Wales... Uh, sorry, the now defunct New, New South Wales Premier's Council on Preventing Violence Against Women. I understand that with the new government, they decided that that wasn't a group mm. that they needed to continue. Yeah, changing it all up. <laughs> She's also an educator on the Tackling Violence campaign for the NRL and on the steering committee for Hey Sis, I've Got Your Back. So please join me in welcoming Dixie Link-Gordon. And then to my far left, I have Dr. Kieran Greywell. Dr. Kieran Greywell is a human rights lawyer and her PhD was on the topic of ethnicised gang rape and the relationship between constructions of national gender and sexual identity in France and Australia. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Greywell. Uh, and if you don't know, which I, do, I don't expect everyone to at all, my name's Clementine Ford and I write for Daily Life. It seems predominantly lately on the topic of rape, which makes for especially nice dinner party conversations, <laughs> as my boyfriend keeps reminding me. <laughs> um, so we're here to discuss rape culture today. Is rape culture everywhere? I've, uh, I'm going to channel my Year 12 private school debate public speaking person now and say, rape culture is a concept used to describe a culture in which rape <laughs> and sexual violence are common and in which prevalent attitudes excuse, tolerate or even condone rape. So I'm sorry to pull out a definition for you there, but that will be the last of definitions, but probably provides a useful framework and context for us to go forth from today. Um, so I, I guess to begin with, I'd just like to ask 
the panelists how they view rape culture and whether or not they even see it as being something that exists because it's, it's a concept that is challenged by some people. Okay, I'll just start off by saying, you know, rape culture is about blaming the victim. There's a whole culture, there's a whole, you know, word out there, talk out there, whether you're on the streets, in the, in the skyscrapers, wherever, they're all talking about, uh, when they talk about rape, it is about the victim and the victim asking for it. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, for me, rape culture is about the ways in which women and girls are taught that their sexuality is something that they constantly need to protect, that is passive, that is objectified, and men and boys are taught that somehow their sexuality is something that is animalistic, that they don't have control over, and they also don't necessarily have a great deal of responsibility that to me is, is rape culture and I mean just to give a little example um, one of the cases that I looked at in my PhD um, the judge on the Supreme Court in his sentencing remarks said I think we need to have better education for girls and boys about rape okay so what, what is his message so he had a whole spiel so for girls don't let anyone tell you that degrading sex is, is enjoyable or fun I'm really glad I need a 60 something old man to tell me mm. that degrading sex isn't enjoyable or fun. And, you know, if you get in a car with strange men, basically you're asking for it. This is a Supreme Court judge in New South Wales talking in 2007. And what is the message to the boys? Well, you may think that this is lots of fun, but we will catch you now and you will go to prison and you'll probably be raped in prison yourself. And that mm. was pretty much his message. So, I mean, that to me captures rape culture. Mm. Um, I think just I'm just going to jump on something you said there about being raped in prison just quickly to kind of broaden that sense of or understanding of rape culture as well is that one of the things that I find interesting about the sort of the punishment pr proposed for rapists is the rape in prison and it's this kind of <laughs> continuation of rape culture as being a corrective form of violence mm. that if you allow for men to be raped in prison to correct their behaviour, then all you're actually doing is perpetuating the concept of rape being a tool that can be used to, to dominate and correct people's behaviour in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that ties back to women who behave in a certain way, who dress in a certain way, who drink in a certain way and who fuck in a certain way, excuse the language, um, deserve to be taught a lesson about what the limitations of their place in society are. Yeah. And it is almost about, um, like, the rape, we say rape culture, but it's almost like the rape journey. You rape, you get raped. Yeah. <laughs> on and on, you know, to say the cycle goes. Yeah. But also, I mean, you know, I often, I mean, I was teaching at Sydney Uni and often with my students, uh, you know, we, obviously I was teaching a social justice course, so we end up talking about rape. Well, also because I end up talking about rape all the time, as my family and friends know, unfortunately. Mm. Um, we should get together. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's quite. And I've got a friend who's here who apparently very blasé said to her to her cousin the other day, "Oh yeah, Kieran's a specialist on rape and torture. <laughs> yeah, preventing it, not committing it." <laughs> but um, you know, so with with my students, like we'll often talk about, well, what does rape look like? And um, so I do a little scenario with tutorial students. So you know, like nine, sort of nineteen, twenty-year-olds, and say, "Okay, so we've got a party situation." You know, you and I, we're really getting along well. You know, we're having a few drinks, kiss, dance, go somewhere a little bit private. You know, everything's on. And 
you, the man in this scenario. I should, yeah, that was very, uh, a very heteronormative thing for me to do. But yeah, this is a bloke that I'm imagining on the other side of this. Um, you know, you start to feel a bit sick. Like, oh, you know, I've had a bit too much to drink. I don't really want to go for it. And I jump on top of you and say, sorry, Tiger, you promised you're going <laughs> to deliver. And of course, everybody in the class just starts to laugh. Like, that's just ridiculous. And you say, well, that's, that's a date rape scenario. Mm. That's a really common date rape scenario. And in that situation, you quite often say, well, you know, what's he going to do? He's already got excited. She seemed like she was up for it. Mm. She's there. She's lying there. I mean, those, the assumptions about, well, guys can't possibly control themselves, which I think is really insulting to men, mm. because certainly the men that I have known throughout my life have had a little bit more self-control and respect than that. But also, you know, then just the assumption that female sexuality is about lie back and think of England. Well, that's, um, that's, that's a really interesting point as well because the assumption that, that men can't be date-raped or that a man would always be up for it speaks to how these kind of stereotypes prevail, you know, that, that women are expected to be the gatekeepers of sexuality, they're expected to be the gatekeepers for, for access to their bodies, that constantly they're negotiating or expected to negotiate a place in society in which they're fending off the advances of these men that can't control themselves. And yet, when discussing rape culture and when discussing ways to prevent rape and actually really like significantly tackle the problem, you'll find that the same men who, who expect it to be the role of women to be the gatekeepers and to protect themselves from those men, those evil monsters that exist in the world, as if rapists are all lurking around corners with signs around their necks, refuse to accept as well that when you discuss about how men can play a part in preventing rape, they automatically go to the, the place of how dare you call all men rapists, how dare you fixate the problem on men, that's insulting to me. And you're like, you're creating this problem for yourself. I had a guy write an email to me once, sorry, it wasn't an email, it was a series of tweets, and he sent a thinly veiled rape threat to me in a series of tweets. And then later on in that series, got angry at me because I apparently assume that all men are rapists. <laughs> and I, I just thought, I mean, the irony there, you know, that you're not allowed to talk about the problem without putting it in this kind of, as we were talk, uh, mentioning on the way down, that if the majority of rape is committed by men, the majority of men are not rapists, but if the majority of rape is committed by men, predominantly against women, then this is a gendered crime. And it's a gendered crime across all levels of how rape culture expresses itself. And yet, when discussing it, you're constantly expected to give the benefit of the doubt to the people, to the group from which the crime and the violence mm. emanates. I feel like that is something that really, really holds people back because if you're, if you're always having to, to watch your language so that you don't offend the group who has the most power to change things, then you just kind of basically keep everyone in this really stunted position. Dixie? Yeah, just all that whole conversation about power and control and when and you do uh, and, and talking about um, uh, the majority of rapists are men, you know, the victims are women, girls, children. And um, for men to um, be scared of a conversation that really is about them and, you know, really wanting to... Uh, we needing to bring it to the women, feminists, having to co continually bring it to the forefront. This is what's happening. These, this is what stats tell us. The stats, the hospitals, the ambulances, you know, the courts tell us that men are out there doing it. 
You know, what, what's um, the fear of men stepping up and taking, um, owning yeah, their power and control and how they choose to use it? Mm. Kieran, you were talking with me earlier about um, rape culture in war and rape as a tool of war and, and how, in your experience, when discussing rape as a tool of war and how it fits into the wider kind of uh, concept of rape culture, people, or some people of your acquaintance have been really eager to differentiate between the importance of one, that rape as a tool of war is something that's significant and serious and much more of a problem than just the kind of rape that might happen in a non-war zone that is, is less kind of violent and long-lasting. Uh, long mm. Yeah, I'm, I, just as a bit of an explanation, I spent some time um, at Amnesty International in London um, working on the Stop Violence Against Women campaign, and what we were looking at in, in the section I was working was on the development of rape as a war crime and rape as a crime against humanity. So, you know, it was a big thing... Um, from the kind of mid-90s that we actually, that, you know, the, there was a huge feminist mobilisation of getting a recognition that, you know, what happened to women in Rwanda or in Yugoslavia was actually a war crime. And it was, a, you know, it was a really important and positive development. But what I, what I discovered in the course of doing that work, then I was in Sierra Leone at the war crimes court there, was we started to end up with this really problematic language of where everyone was talking about rape as a war crime as if it was completely separate from other forms of rape, and that what was really bad about it was that it was being cut done in war. And to the point where my favourite quote... Um, I'm quoting judges all the time, so I sound like a lawyer, don't I? Um, but there was um, an article in the American Journal of International Law, so like big international law journal, um, written by a former judge of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, where he actually makes the argument that rape in war is different, qualitatively different, um, from merely undesired sex that happens in peacetime. I, I love that quote, merely undesired sex. I mean, what on earth that means, I have no idea. But, you know, so it really, it's amazing to me how, you know, what we've done at the kind of domestic level of real rape is what happens to, you know, where it's a stranger who grabs you in the park and it's violent, and the, re the reality of where the majority of rape happens is never considered real rape. So what happens in the family or, you know, mm. by a boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-husband, whatever, that's never counted as real rape. So now we've created a new layer of what is real rape is where it's enemy soldiers coming into a village and raping women, and what women experience on a daily basis in their lives is still not real rape. And, I mean, I sort of made the statement at a conference and I thought I was going to get shot down, but luckily there were feminist activists in the room who agreed with me, that I'm not sure that it is qualitatively worse to be raped by an enemy soldier who then leaves than to be raped by someone who is supposed to love me and cherish me and treat me with dignity every day. Um, and I, I don't know which is worse because I've never, thank God, been in either situation. But I suspect that judge who made that comment also has never been in the situation mm, sure. to make that distinction. Mm. Mm. I think that um, that really demonstrates how when you're discussing rape and when you're trying to pinpoint rape culture and convince people of rape culture's ex existence when they're very much invested in not accepting it as being a problem. It's a really like slippery concept that people are constantly trying to find a new definition for or a new way to direct attention, where if you say, well, actually rape is a woman jogging in a park wearing a pair of 
sweatpants and it's a stranger and he's probably socially maladjusted in some way and he's really violent and smelly or, you know, all these sorts of things where they can kind of, like, come up with this blueprint profile of what a real rapist looks like and therefore what a real rape looks like. It also extends to, uh, you know, issues of racism that mm. Dixie and I, and I were talking before about how a lot of, you know, white society, particularly with, you know, the racism with the intervention, can kind of look at Indigenous society and say, well, that's just full of sexual violence and that's what sexual violence really looks like and that's not really a problem that we need to worry about or rape as a tool of war or all of the... Rape in India, you know, the, there are all of these different kind of societies in which rape is expected to be just part of that, but they're different to us. They don't express, you know, respect for women the same way that we do. So when, so when you've got two footballers who rape a girl in Steubenville in Ohio, mm. what results is a woman writing a blog post very articulately and complaining about how there should be a drunken whores registry. Because, and th this was an actual blog post written after Steubenville, because that's not what real rape looks like. And by bringing a case against these two footballers, not only has she ruined both of their lives, but she's also mocked real rape victims and diminished their experience. Mm. So that's kind of like all of those different complicated levels of how rape culture works across race and class and cultural lines too. Even with that whole story, like the, those um, them young males, you know, nurtured along by the coach, you know, all that that uh, talk of you know, oh, the coach says I'm going to get off. It's all good. It's all going to pass. You know, the little messages that were going, texts going around between those players. It's um. It's like they're in there, they're fantastic sports people, blah, blah, blah. And here they are, nurtured to... The, the, the excuses are there already for them. You know, instead of, you know, talking about respecting women as much as you respect your mates out on the oval, you know, out in the field, or whatever they call it. Mm. 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 I don't know if anyone in here saw... Some of you would have done after the Steubenville verdict was handed down. Um, mm. A Tumblr was created called Public Shaming. .tumblr.com and it collected all of these responses from people via Twitter and Facebook to the Steubenville verdict. And what was, t I mean, to me when I looked at that, that was for everyone who denies that rape culture exists or denies that rape is a problem, you know, a systemic problem in all societies, that kind of demonstrated to me exactly how deeply it goes because the assumption was that not only had this girl who should have known better, she shouldn't have been drinking, she should be punished because she was drinking alcohol, why isn't she being equally punished as these boys were, that she'd ruined their lives, but that also, what else were they expected to do? You know, she was there, she was drinking, she was drunk. As one tweet said, I feel sorry for those boys, they just did what everyone else would have done. Oh. And when I was reading that, it kind of occurred to me that if you assume that women are the gatekeepers of sexuality and the gatekeepers against violence that is just naturally waiting to happen, that, that that presumption is, as you point out, it's very offensive to men, but the presumption is that all men via that, all men are rapists just waiting for an opportunity. Mm. And if you, if you kind of assume that that's the case, then the reason that these people can look at that in their mind and say, well, it's not fair that she wasn't punished is because... Those boys were just doing 
what they were supposed to do and they were punished for it. They were punished for doing just what they were supposed to do but she didn't do what she was supposed to do. She didn't not drink. She didn't not wear skimpy clothing. She went to a party with people that she may not have known very well and yet she hasn't received any punishment for that so where's the justice? Mm. And that's what that whole kind of dialogue around women's responsibility and men's lack of responsibility comes from in that particular kind of model. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it makes me think of, um, you know, when there was that scandal about Sheikh El Halali here um, making the speech about, you know, women as are like, what is it, uncovered meat and, mm. you know, it's not the cat's fault if the cat eats it and whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I found really amazing about the outraged responses to that were that... I mean, for me, I just thought that is an absolutely outrageous statement, but it is absolutely capturing the rape myths that circulate quite freely everywhere. And yet you had politicians just coming out and saying, this is a problem with Muslim immigrants. If we just get rid of Muslim immigrants, then, they, then this goes away. No, that's, that's not the problem. The problem is... And, yeah, the problem is that this, this is the sorts of things that ordinary people think, men and women, because that's the other thing that we need to say, that rape culture is also perpetuated by women. I mean, I, some of the things that I've heard women say about other women mm. absolutely confirm all of these ideas, misogynist yeah. ideas. But it's also, once you just transfer it to another community, whether it's indigenous people or it's, you know, Muslims or it's, well, you know, Africans in fighting some conflict far away, is you don't actually ever have to name what's at the essence, what I think is at the essence, which is we just haven't come to terms with an idea of female sexuality as a proper sexuality, as, mm. you know, in the same way that... <laughs> and I also think, you know, and this is what I always say to my male students, this is as insulting to you as it is to women because it means that your sexuality is constructed around you just being these complete Neanderthals who have, you know, no control over yourselves and you're just out there to, you know, rape and plunder. I mean, and, and girls, you have no sexuality. And, you know, my mum is um, a high school teacher and, I mean, you know, some of the stories that she's told me of things that teenage girls believe about themselves and about how they are supposed to live their sexuality. You know, to the point where one day she came home and she was kind of despairing because uh, she was the head of welfare and all these girls were coming in with these stories of parties that they'd been to and, you know, supposedly being required to give blowjobs to X number of boys and whatever. And she said to me, you know, I, d I just despair. Maybe you could come in and say something to them. I said, well, you know, what I'd like to come in and say to them is, I, this is not a moral position for, you know, that you shouldn't be having sex. It's, if you're going to do things, make sure that you're doing it because you're actually getting pleasure out of it. Nobody says that to girls. Mm. Like, it, you mm. never get to say, actually, sexuality for you should be fun and something that is you enjoy and that you communicate as an equal with the other person. But the flip side of that as well is that the fixation on sexualization as being something that's very real and very problematic and threatening to all girls. And I agree that there is a thing... I agree that sexualization exists. I don't agree with the extent to which it's discussed and used as a weapon against girls because the assumption now is that any time a girl makes a sexual decision, she's not making it of her own free will. She's making it because it's an external pressure that's been placed upon her. And I feel like that, in, in just a different way, just completely mm. removes agency from girls about the sexual choices that they want to make. Mm. 
Well, which is why, I mean, I was talking to another friend of mine who also spends a lot of time thinking and talking about rape. And uh, mm. she was saying she asks um, her students um, when um, in school when they were learning sort of sex ed stuff, um, how many of them were told that it's all right to say no? And, you know, pretty much all of the girls in the class, well, girls and boys said, yeah, you know, we're taught that it's all right to say no. And then she asks them, were you taught how to say no? How do you actually do that in that situation? Mm. No, they're, they're not. So, I mean, you know, for me, one of the things is, rather than just talking about, okay, rape, the, the end point, you know, this is really bad and we need to punish or, we, you know, we need to stop this, it's actually starting at the other end and saying, how do we teach both boys and girls to have proper communication and mutually enjoyable and respectful sexual interactions? It's like there is no communication. You don't have to talk at all. Like sex just happens until you want to say no. And then you have to say no in, in their face like this and make them go away. And, you know, most girls, particularly when you think about kind of date rape scenarios, most girls, especially young girls, you know, how do you actually... You don't want to shout in this guy's face, but you may want to also just tell him to back off. But there's not really a very good idea about how to do that. There was an excellent article in... Um the paper a few weeks ago, and it was about the importance of allowing your teenage kids, but especially your teenage daughters, to be able to have sleepovers with the people that they maybe were sexually interested in. And one of the points that I thought that the most, most sensible comments in the whole piece came from the 15-year-old girl. <laughs> and one of her points was that if you allow girls to have... To, to, it to be in their zone, into their... their area where they feel like they've got some degree of power, then they have much more power to say no because they can just say, get out of my house. You know, and they've got their parents there to kind of reinforce that. Whereas when they're outside of that and, and working in this kind of mindset where they, they think that they're breaking the rules and they think that they don't have any power, it's much more difficult for them to express those mm. needs or that opposition. Mm. Um, Dixie, I'm just wondering if you can talk about the work that you've done with the NRL. Yeah. Well, at the moment, uh, we're div I work for Mudgingale Aboriginal Women's Centre that's based over in Chippendale, and um, we're at the moment developing the NRL's Voice Against Violence. But um, during, uh, in the last five years, the state government's funded a program for state and federal government called uh, Tackling Violence Program, Let's Tackle Domestic Violence. So that's um, rolled out in uh, rural, New S rural and remote New South Wales. And uh, one of the key things I'm just thinking as we're talking here was we had this conversation about, uh, well, it is around domestic violence, but I'll just say, uh, put it out there anyway. We put this question out to the players, like, who talks about domestic violence with you? Who, you know, who says, you know, uh, actually that particular night we had a couple of um, girls who play in the football team and they felt, um, in the women's footy, they felt like okay sharing in the presentation and um, no-one really talks to me. That was, uh, you know, the... Um, the majority of the response from everybody, but one young woman said, well, yeah, my dad talks to me about it and he tells me about my worth, you know, and um, what, I, what I should be looking out for in life when I'm going out there and um, doing my thing and, you know, um, in regards to relationships. So um, I think that sort of brings us around to, like, how we, how we respond as a community, mm. you know, and um, what, what information's put out there really around um, your parenting and what your parents are talking about or how they talk about... Uh, rape to you, how they talk about domestic violence to you, how they talk about um, what you look for, you know, um, in relationships. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's something that's just... Um, the conversation has to continually be there. There has to be um, accessible uh, community education where people can pick it up and, 
you know, talk about this without the whole media thing coming down, you know. We're all women look to be raped if they, you know, dress a certain way. All young men who are out there, you know, the, the, the young kings in their worlds and they're, they're, um, they're untouchable, they can do what they want to do and, you know, no one's going to say anything because they're just this fantastic sportsman or, you know, well, majority of the time sportsman, I must say. Mm. Yeah, and, um, and they're untouchable. So I just um, so that what stood out for me, yeah, really is around talking. I mean, we must have done at least uh, two thousand players over the time, and um, and really is uh, like I said, it's about the awareness around uh, domestic violence. But um, you do you do wonder, and you know, when you're out there talking to them, you know, the next step, like uh, around um, rape, you know, who talks to them about it if they're so <laughs> detached from domestic violence, which is in the paper every day, or you know, right across the land. Um, Who's talking about rape? Who's talking about sexual abuse? And that thing about young people and, um, you know, in, who, are, who are out there discovering you know, new relationships mm. when it comes but, to But also, you know, I kind of think even... It's not even about necessarily going straight to talking about rape. It's actually, you know, talking to men and boys about appropriate Respect. ways to, yeah, to engage. I mean, I, I'll give you a personal story. Um, <laughs> this was after I had given a presentation at a conference on my thesis topic, which was gang rape. So this guy, we go for a walk. This is another person at the conference. I didn't know him at all. And he says, oh, I want to sit down. Let's sit down on the grass. So we sit on the grass. This is in Melbourne Botanical Gardens. And the next thing I know is he jumps on top of me. And this guy was an army reserve guy, like big guy, and he jumps on top of me. Now, my response was I started to laugh because I was like, what the hell are you doing? And he said to me, what, don't you want this? I was like, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what it is that you think that we're doing here. And uh, <laughs> I mean, he was obviously, you know, somewhat, I don't know, lacking in emotional intelligence. I mean, he was doing a PhD, so you'd think that he would have a little bit of common sense. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> so I, I, I sort of laugh and I, I push him off and, and he says to me, yeah, well, no, I mean, he does continue, but I'm not going to give you the whole story. But he, um, but he sort of says to me, you know, yeah, that's what I, I sort of liked about you straight away, you know, that you, you, know, you, you kind of know what you want. You know, most girls, you just give them a bit of a I push. I just really liked that you wouldn't let me rape you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most it's girls, spirit. You, you, give, you give them a bit of a push and, and they give up. And I raise my eyebrows at him and say, uh, you know, I right on gang rape. And he's like, no, no, I don't mean I rape them. I just mean oh. just push it a little bit. And like this guy honestly did not understand that an appropriate, I mean, apart from the fact that it's not an appropriate way to <laughs> ever romance someone, I would have thought. <laughs> but the idea that actually that is a normal part of how a man would engage a woman, that you might just, oh, go on, you know you want to, oh, go on, I, you know, I think you're really pretty, go on. Mm. And that, that a girl would go, oh, no, 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 oh, all right then. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, just actually starting that conversation, of what sort of sex is it that you think you want to be having? Mm. Well, it's, it's coming from a place of negotiation as well, and it's not the right kind of negotiation. It's not like, it's not negotiating a respectful space where regardless of what you're doing, I don't care what it involves, but where both parties or all parties are aware of what everyone is feeling in that situation and aware that everyone is present in the situation. It's, it's the negotiation of, oh, go on, yep. go on, oh, go on, go on, mm. all right. Mm. <laughs> and it's sort of like um, 
know, bringing back the, our own sort of Steubenville with the Cronulla Sharks in, mm. in New Zealand in 2002. And I've, I've been looking at that case a little bit more lately, as I did at the time when Four Corners reported on it in mm. Code of Silence. And the transcript is online, and I recommend that everyone go and read it if you're interested. Mm. But that was a situation for people who can't remember or who maybe don't know about it, where um, a young 19-year-old girl in 2002 was at a hotel, working at a hotel in New Zealand, and the Cronulla Sharks had come in, you know, on tour. And she'd, uh, whatever happened, she decided to go back to a hotel room with two of them, one of whom was Maddie Johns, who at the time of this coming out was working on the, the footy show, the rugby version of it. Mm. And she went back to the hotel room with these two guys, and whilst they were engaged in whatever it was they were doing, 12 other men who were connected to the Sharks entered the room. Um, some of them were players, some of them were, were management. Some of them entered through the window, climbing through the window, and one player described commando crawling along the floor and stood around and watched what was going on. Um, six more of them had sex with her while others stood and watched and some of them masturbated. And none of this was disputed by any of the players after Four Corners broadcast this. It was mostly corroborated by them. And yet... The public, in responding to it, not only did Maddie Johns um, give a tearful apology on Channel 9 to his wife, mm. not to the girl who'd Future suffered years age. of mm. post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. but the girl was called a liar by, you know, huge proportions of the Australian public. That she, the same kind of things that you hear all the time, the same kind of things people were saying about the girl in Steubenville. No, she probably wanted it, she just regretted it afterwards. Mm. She was unconscious! Mm. Um, well, not in the Cronulla Sharks situation, but this is a 19-year-old girl surrounded by 14 big rugby players. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen a rugby player, but they're massive. And she was called a liar afterwards. They didn't really acknowledge that what they had done to her was wrong, even though they acknowledged that it had happened, because technically it wasn't illegal, because she didn't say no. And that was that, you know, the whole no means no kind of model of education was helpful to an extent, except that it put all of the emphasis on girls having to say no. Mm. And that's where the, the model of enthusiastic consent comes in. But mm. one of the things that she said, which I thought was just really telling and really heartbreaking, was in the interview that she gave, she said sex is... I'm paraphrasing. But she said sex is supposed to be about having fun with the other person and, you know, talking and laughing and kissing and... And she said, this wasn't like that. No, no one talked to me. They talked to each other and they laughed with each other, but no one talked to me. Yeah. And when you sort of think about the enthusiastic model of consent and that that's what negotiation should be about and that presence of everyone involved, that it doesn't matter if you're stringing them up on the roof and, you know, whacking them with a stick. If they want that and if you're checking that that's what they want and that they're present in that... Mm. But it's like sex now, whether or not it's because we've got this really puritanical approach to sex and puritanical approach to women's involvement in sex and their ability to enjoy it, they're just these passive kind of conduits for mm. male bonding, that there's no acknowledgement that, there is, that it's an equal give and take and people now and some, some people are just trying to figure out how they can get it. Mm -mm. I didn't mean that to silence <laughs> everyone, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, but I, we've also only got about 10 minutes left. It's mm. gone so quickly. So we might um, keep talking, but 
just open up to questions. We can go a little bit over time because there isn't a session after this. So if you want to stick around and um, take a bit longer, then that's fine. If you do want to leave, then please feel free to do so, but just make sure you don't disturb okay. anyone around you. Um, and also, I have to sensitively ask that keep your questions to a question. I understand that it's a topic that's fraught with lots of emotions and lots of people have stories, but um, it's just no time or space to hear all of them today. So if we can just keep it to questions and that would be really, really great. So there's one at the back there. Oh, you look to be, just look behind you, I am talking to you. <laughs> No, you go. <laughs> <laughs> How do you have this conversation? Get out of here. <laughs> How would you tell it to the judges, Karen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the whole issue of false accusations of rape is one of the most prevalent rape myths. I mean, mm. I always just say to people, actually, reporting false accusations of rape are no higher than false claims made on any other crime, but you don't not talk about assault in case somebody, you know, falsely accuses you of assault. Mm. Um, so, you know, in terms of the, the levels of fault, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but people make up all sorts of stories about all sorts of stuff. Um, it doesn't mean we can't talk about mm. it. Um, so that would be the first thing. And I suppose the other thing is, again, because rape is such a loaded word and because it you know as I was saying before you know people sort of say rape as a rep as a weapon of war I thought that was a useful slogan when we were first using it now I think it's I never want to hear it again because it just takes everybody to that extreme place where actually you know as you were saying before Dixie I mean you know if we're talking about just getting the conversation started about everyday encounters with people like how do you understand what it is to to actually get affirmative consent in, you know from the person that you're having sex with um you know that just trying to to educate guys that this is not about them going you know that they're going to immediately get busted apart from anything else the percentage of successful convictions is like three percent so they really don't have much to worry about even if they do get accused but but uh, I mean that's not what you're going to say to them of course but I mean basically go <laughs> going to the point of actually you know starting the conversation about well what what is it that they understand about what women expect from sex I mean and I hate that idea of what women want from sex as if there's like some you know mm. one answer to that but you know just trying to start the conversation about sexuality maybe rather than the conversation about rape necessarily mm. yeah and it's about m men having that 
conversation between themselves too about what yeah. their sexuality looks like. True. You know, and it does, uh, to be a real man, do I always have to be in control? Do I always have to have the power, you know, to take my partner as I wish and when I want to? Yeah, yeah that's really true as well. Mm. And I think that it, um, it kind of betrays, whether or not conscious or not, an understanding that that isn't how society operates now, that that isn't how women are treated generally speaking, in a kind of sexual sense, that if your concern is so much that you might be accused falsely of a rape charge, then that means that we're not actually having... Men are not having enough conversations with each other about what positive, enthusiastic <laughs> consent looks like and what... And, and how to avoid... I mean, maybe we should be talking about how to avoid a rape charge, you know? <laughs> mm, well... How to avoid yeah, actually, in England, they did uh, they did make a little leaflet of if you don't want to be accused of rape, these are don't the sorts do of this. things. Yeah. Well, but I um I remember a while ago there was someone left a comment on one of my articles, um, saying, oh, you know that this always gets tied back to property theft. You know that if you mm. don't want to be raped, then don't leave your vagina sitting on a windowsill somewhere. <laughs> you know, mm. lock your cars up, ladies. Mm. Um, as if, like, somehow your sexuality... And it's very convenient for people to imagine rape as being something... Or rape that isn't war or isn't, you know, some kind of culture that they don't understand. It's really easy for them to imagine it that women's sexuality is outside of them and that if they can kind of externalise it as a material possession, then they can imagine that it doesn't really have that much of an effect on the woman involved because what they're violating isn't the woman, they're taking her credit card from her, you know? <laughs> mm. And mm. this uh, analogy that someone left on this thing saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint it clearly for you, Clementine. If you put all of your possessions on the front lawn of your house and then go inside, you can't be surprised if people come and take them away from you. And um, at the time, I, I sort of put that on my Facebook page and my friend Ben said... No, if you put all of your possessions on the front lawn of your house and sit there watching them and someone comes and punches you in the face and steals <laughs> them from you, that's assault. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like this idea that, like, don't, lo don't leave your cars unlocked or don't leave your vagina lying around somewhere, you know, mm. oh, God, where did I leave it? No, someone's <laughs> going to take it. <laughs> if someone comes and I'm sitting inside the car <laughs> and they beat me up and they pull me out of it and steal the car, that's really, really different to me just like forgetting to lock it, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of also about reframing the concept of... of stop, like, let's stop being concerned about painting it for what it is, which is a really, really violent act that happens to far more women and men than people would like to admit. Mm. Mm. And men should be having those conversations with their sons or their friends or their brothers or whatever, like their brethren, you know? Mm. Oh, so many questions. <laughs> Ask this lady. Always associating violence with rape. Mm. Um, I think that there is enough rape that's happening that isn't, uh, isn't involved with other forms of violence other than the rape itself. Mm -hmm. And I think you're actually making it easier for people to deny that they raped mm -hmm. if there wasn't a punch or a kick or a bite mm -hmm. or a shout involved. Mm. Uh, I think um, Dixie had some interesting things to talk about with um, coaches getting into young men's heads about the way to be a man is to respect women. Um, and there are some coaches who seem to have that attitude and that ability to spread that message better than others. So, 
Yes, rape is a terrible thing to experience, but not always violent. And I think people who experience rape where there isn't violence mm. are encouraged to think that it wasn't a rape and mm. that the people who perpetrate that crime are also allow, are able to excuse themselves and say, well, it wasn't rape because I didn't hurt her. Mm. Yeah. And she got wet, mm. so she mm. must have enjoyed it. Mm. Um, just quickly on that, I think that that's a really excellent point and I think as well the, the kind of... The addendum that often gets added to any kind of story about rape, that a woman's life is ruined forever, you know, that they've only gotten two years in jail but her life is ruined forever is also really damaging because if you sort of present to women or to victims, not just women, but to victims that their life is ruined, then that's really a diminishing thing for them as well. And uh, um, a woman I know experienced rape and it was sort of, it wasn't violent, and for a long time she didn't realise that it was rape or she didn't feel like she had the right to call it rape because it wasn't violent. And it had the added sort of... Bonus is really the wrong word to use, but it had the added issue of the fact that she was drinking at a party with a boy that she liked and she'd been sort of... You know, it had been building up. They'd been dating, I think, and, um, you know, he raped her, but it wasn't violent and she didn't want to do it. She told him no and it didn't didn't complete, he didn't finish it. And for a long time afterwards, she felt like it wasn't rape and also because she had wanted to have sex with him, just not then. And she thought, I might have had sex with him next week. But there's all those kind of really subtle things subtle. as well. Mm. Yeah, complex marriages, rape and marriages, you know, getting up in the morning, cooking your breakfast, everything's okay. Mm. You know, forced sex on you the night before. You know, he loves me, it was just a bad night, mm. you know. That's, what, that's how you negotiate in relationships. Mm. Mm. Oh, did everyone hear that? Um, what role do you think pornography plays in the prevalence of pornography today with um, young guys' attitude towards sex? Well, you might have some really clear insights with the NRL stuff that you've been doing. Yeah, well, um, in regards to domestic violence, I, oh. we don't really get into... Um, oh, seriously, we don't really have that conversation about pornography. And, um, and we are... And it doesn't... We don't really even uh, go into sexual assault. It's a rape itself. It is really, um, I will say, right, the siloed, uh, siloed into domestic violence, mm -hmm. you know, and... Um, We've had the, we've uh, last year we launched this CD that we made. Um, it's called Changing Ways, and it was specifically for men, and it was around um, domestic violence. And we had three guys on it: uh, Aboriginal guy, uh, white Australian guy, and a professional football player. Everybody talked about the impact of domestic violence in their lives, and um, it was uh, the uh, the st everybody's story was pretty graphic and really. Um, they just showed how, how it affected them and they were um, each and every one of them come out of, you know, violent homes. And I think that um, having that put out in their face, I'm, I'm probably getting away from the answer, but um, that, that really got a big response from the men in the room. So um, I don't know, probably just lost it there for a bit. <laughs> Still very valid yeah. input. Yeah. I mean, I suppose... Um, so Catherine McKinnon, who's a big feminist legal scholar, um, mm. had a, a big issue with pornography and mm. um and I mean she basically sort of links 
rape culture with pornography by saying, mm. well, it's the eroticization of domination. So, you know, mm. basically we make it sexy that women are degraded in some way. And, you know, that if the best sex education that young guys get is through porn, which mm. continues... And that's, I mean, you know, Catherine McKinnon has been a attacked for lots of things, and I think she does go too far in... Um, you know, sort of saying, okay, well, we just get rid of pornography because, you know, then you can end up on this kind of other weird moral bandwagon. But, I mean, certainly, and I don't think you can blame the porn itself. You've got to question, well, what is it about these kind of really degrading images of sexuality that aren't about women, actually? You know, and there is porn out there that is about, you know, empowered women and, you know, but quite often that's women watching it. It's not men mm. watching it. So, I mean, they're, they're kind of mutually reinforcing that, mm. you know, the, the pornography continues to make this erotic. But it's not just pornography. I mean, you know, you think, like, you, you think about popular culture more broadly. I mean, Nando's, Nando's chicken ads drive me insane because I will never, ever, don't eat in Nando's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I hope they're not a sponsor or anything. <laughs> yeah, Nando's is a sponsor of a feminist event. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the current ad, which is just, you know, these images of these really stupid women and men kind of buying each other burgers because, oh, you know, someone accidentally got his girlfriend along to the poker night or because or he wanted to get this girl, you know, he wanted to have sex with this girl and the guy, you know, his mate had to stand outside in the room. And, you know, oh. like these kinds, or the, the previous one about, you know, the woman who's a pole dancer. It's like, you know, so these popular culture images... Again, pornography is just the extreme end, but it's everything else that constantly reinforces this idea of women as sexual objects and men as sexual subjects and agents. Mm. And I think just quickly with the pornography as well, one of the, the truly negative things that happens with pornography is that it presents a really plastic cardboard kind of version of male sexuality as well. Oh, that yeah. if you're positioning the viewer to always be looking, the male viewer to always be looking at themselves through the eyes of this very silent, often silent kind of figure mm. to this very performative version of female sexuality as well, then there's no, there's no ability for that expression to occur and, and, and that goes back to the idea of negotiation as well. Mm. And I think that the way that pornography kind of links back to... I'm not a fan of banning pornography, but I, I get frustrated with the conversation about pornography because it ends up being split into these two really extreme dichotomies. Mm. And one is the Gail Dines who just think that all pornography is banned, it should all be gotten rid of. And then there's the pro-porn people who respond to that line of argument by saying, no, you're being puritanical, people don't ape what they see on pornography, blah, blah, blah. I think that there is a point at which you can say that there is nothing wrong with voyeurism. There's nothing wrong with consenting adults participating in pornography, either as performers or by watching it. But there has to be a point at the middle where you say, currently, the majority of porn created is very degrading towards women. And acknowledging that doesn't mean that you're saying that people shouldn't be allowed to watch sex. It just means you're saying people should want to watch people having sex in a way that doesn't denigrate one half of humanity. Mm -hmm. a, f a friend of mine has a really good analogy where she says that if you made a, 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 like a huge kind of pop cultural phenom phenomenon which had millions of dollars behind it and it was all about the degradation of Jewish people or black people and you were just told, well, you, it's not really about your degradation. You know, you, you should enjoy it. You should probably participate and watch it. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. 
And I'm not at all saying that racism isn't a problem or that racism is, isn't tolerated in the same way that sexism is. But there is, I think in some ways, women are expected to put up with the degradation of themselves and participate it, in it and be happy about it. And you're not allowed to question those things. Mm. Oh, there's so many questions. There's a man there, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> ask, ask for his input. <laughs> I don't want to be burned at the stake on the way out. Um, so I'm going to use, try and use words that I've heard today from females. In one of the talks earlier I said, if you want uh, the house to be vacuumed, don't have sex with them until they do that. This idea that females use sex as an object to get something done as a revolutionary kind of thought about this idea that maybe females enjoy sex, is that is there any chance that maybe females could instigate sex in the first place? The second question that I have is around this just idea... Just like a man, isn't it? I'll just, I'll just take two questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just joking, I'm just joking. <laughs> You're looking get nervous oh, now. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> oh, now it's awkward. Uh, the second one is, if this is an issue that is predominantly targeted towards males as uh, the, um, the issue is at hand, is, it, is this not a great opportunity to engage males in the discussion? And in an environment like this, which is predominantly targeted towards females, why are there no males on the panel? <laughs> well, I, my question was going to be, why are there not more men in the audience? Because... <laughs> I mean, I can say I, I'm very used to being talked to by panels of men wherever I go, <laughs> and it's just normal, whereas, you know, the, I mean, the reality is, I, I think it's, and that's why, you know, we're glad that you ask your questions, because, I mean, obviously part of and this very is... very glad that you came as well. Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. that, that we actually do, you know, there, this is pointless if we just keep having this conversation amongst ourselves. We should be talking about getting men involved. And in response to your point about women instigating, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, one of my, fr yeah, the friend I was talking about before who was talking about sexual ethics, she actually said, you know, actually it might be quite good... Because, um, you know, quite often this idea of affirmative consent, so actually, you know, making, making sure that the other person say, doesn't just not say no, but actually is saying yes, yes, clearly. Um, that, you know, that's often said, oh, well, it's too difficult because, you know, girls and women, you know, generally they don't instigate and, you know, it's kind of not very feminine. And she was like, well, maybe actually if we got to that point, then maybe women would have to step up and say, I'm not going to play the little, you know oh, you know, go on then, you're going to seduce me, um, mm. that actually women would actually step up. And, you know, I, I think that if you give them the space, then there is a responsibility on women to also participate in that. And that's the other thing that, you know, I mean, with the popular culture representations of objectified women, I mean, women also really have a responsibility in this. I mean, you know, you think of the Paris Hiltons of this world that, you know, continue to present a vision of female sexuality that is very... I mean, you know, yeah, OK, great, she's getting out there and having sex, but, in, I mean, you know, it's so much about objectifying herself. I mean, you can't tell the difference between a male rapper's video clip and a female singer's video clip because they both just feature lots of naked women. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that women do need to take a responsibility in this as well. So, yeah. Oh, oh look. That's them mm. turning the light off. Get out, mm. they're saying. Um, thank you all so much for coming today. Uh, there's no, no way that we could possibly cover all of the issues. I know I'm feeling... In, oh, can we keep going? One more. One more. One more question. All right.
Mm. Oh, it's so hard to choose. <laughs> Whoever stands up first. Yeah. <laughs> that lady. Uh, you just mentioned singing. Um, I'm a singer, so that I thought that was quite interesting. I shrank in my seat when you started to say singer. <laughs> um, but since you're talking about language, like, is it true that we have to learn how to speak the correct language? And is the question that we have to ask one another, whether it's another girl or another guy, is what is it about the word no that you don't understand? Because when someone said that to me once in a completely different context, I was being a bit cocky, a bit pushy, saying, come and walk to the beach, come and walk to the beach, and she had jet lag, and she was saying, what is it about the word no you don't understand? And it's really amazing how if someone stops you, trips you over, and you realise, well, yeah, what am I doing? I'm annoying this person. And you start to ask a question to yourself and say, well... Yeah, how would I feel if someone was, you know, kept, keeps knocking at my door and I don't want to open the door? So that's the question. Dixie? What can I say? No means no in my world, but... Um, wow. If, um, I mean, it's, it really is around about um, education and when we're talking about rape, we're talking about sexual abuse and people just, you know, not... I think it just goes back to the, whatever we're, uh, the type of person you're talk, who's having, you're having the conversation with. They feel it's a, it's a privilege for them to get what they want in this world. They're going to go out and try and do, you know, even how they see rape. You know, what, what does it look like to them? What, is the, what does the word mean to them? Mm. Um, yeah, well, there was a study done in... A few studies done in America that revealed that a, a lot more university, male university students were willing to admit that they'd raped women when you removed the word rape from the equation. Mm. You called it coercion or you called it, mm. went, you know, took advantage. And yeah. I just think as well that we need to, if you're talking about language, we need to stop using phrases like taking advantage of someone. You take advantage of a coupon or a discount deal. <laughs> yes, you do. You don't take advantage of a mm. woman's body or a man's That's body. Right. Mm. Mm. But also, I mean, I think part of the problem is that quite often these supposedly ambiguous situa situations of rape, it's, it's because sometimes that person hasn't necessarily said no. I mean, there's, you know, that, that sometimes it's, again, a, a girl, particularly, you know, I'm thinking, you know, young women, or, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I certainly think as you get older, you get more confidence. But, you know, that, that sometimes trying to express that you're not quite happy with the situation for a number of reasons, whether it's because you're afraid, whether it's because you feel like you've already gone too far, whether it's because, you know, you don't want to hurt someone's feelings or, you know, and, and particularly because, you know, girls are socialised to try and make other people mm, happy, you know, so it does feel like we're not very good at saying no in loads of situations. I mean, you know, that's why most of the women I work with work too hard <laughs> because they can't say no in any situation. It's not just in the bedroom. Mm. Um, so sometimes the problem isn't necessarily that the person hasn't understood the word no. It's also saying, what are you doing to make sure that the person is actually saying yes? Mm. How are you actually making sure that they're saying yes? And that's, again, going back to that thing of, well, if guys actually go, okay, I'm not going to have sex with you unless you make clear to me that you want to have sex with me, one, that 
if men are worried that, you know, they're going to be falsely accused of rape, well, that's one surefire way that they won't be. Mm. And two, that's, that's a way in which women then take responsibility and say, well, yeah, actually, I don't have to play this little wallflower. If I want to have sex, then I should be able to say to the person, bring it on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good place <laughs> <laughs> Thank note. you all so... No. Oh, sorry. We... No, no, no. Oh. Thank you all so much for coming. Please join me in thanking... Mm. Dixie Link Gordon and Dr. Kieran Graywell. We didn't solve the problems of rape culture today, but it's impossible to solve millennia, to, you know, millions of years of oppression in a 45-minute session. We'll do better next no. time. <laughs> Thank you.